1: Listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Tonight on the show, we cover a variety of topics fair housing, food truck introspective, which will be done by Audrey Matus, and we talk about glue and transcend the binary. That's G L U and transcend the binary. Um, all of that's coming up, but first, here's your weekly Impact update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News.
4: Exposure will return in just a moment, but first, your weekly news update. This Saturday, Rand Paul will stop in Flint as part of his presidential campaign tour. The Kentucky senator will bring his take our country back mantra to the Flint farmer's market this weekend. He is the first major 2016 presidential candidate to visit the city this year. Rand vocally denounces Washington, which often sets him off course with his fellow Republicans. A banner over the stage at his presidential campaign announcement read, Defeat the Washington Machine, Unleash the American Dream. When Rand stopped by Grand Rapids in May, the Republican senator promised to put an end to what he calls NSA's spy programs and suggested a fair and flat tax to cut taxes by $2 trillion over the next decade. Now, Marissa Saldivia with the latest on North and South Korea relations. This past weekend, three North Korean sailors have defected to South Korea after their ship was stranded in nearby waters. A North Korean ship was found sinking near an island off of the southeast coast of North Korea. There were five sailors on board, three of which have fled to South Korea. More than 28,000 North Koreans have fled to the south after a horrible famine hit their country since the late 1990s. Some of them have escaped through China, while some have defected by passing through the heavily guarded land or maritime borders between the north and the south. For Impact News, I'm Marissa Saldivia. Next, we go to Impact reporter Michaela Harris with your entertainment news. Yesterday, court papers from comedian Bill Cosby's sexual assault trials dating back to 2005 were made public. In a swarm deposition, Cosby admitted to obtaining prescription quaaludes in the 70s to give to women he wanted to have sex with. The papers from the trial were made public after the Associated Press went to court to compel their evidence. The comedian, best known for playing Dr. Cliff Hoxtable on The Cosby Show, is currently facing a number of other sexual allegations that date back to the 1960s. Cosby has also admitted to offering women money in the form of educational trust. At this time, Cosby has not admitted to actually drugging any of his accusers and has never been criminally charged. With your entertainment news, I'm Michaela Harris. Finally, reporter Jack Montgomery with the rise of mosquitoes in the Lansing area.
1: The mosquito population has been running wild in the greater Lansing area this summer. The Ingham County Health Department has been urging residents to take extra safety precautions to avoid bites. This includes applying repellent at peak times, such as dusk and dawn, and draining any standing water to decrease breeding sites. According to Lansing State Journal, Howard Russell, an etymologist for Michigan State, suggests people should wear loose-fitting clothing and long-sleeved shirts. Russell also mentioned that we can thank the heavy rains for the abnormally large population this year, and due to the continued rain, we'll be swatting these mosquitoes for another 10 days or so. With your local news, I'm Jack Montgomery.
4: This has been your weekly update. I've been your anchor, Audrey Matuse, and Exposure starts now.
1: You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM, Michigan State University's student-run news program. First up on the show, we go to Linda Vale, the health officer of Ingham County, to talk about the ICE Ice Housing Plan.
4: So recently, the Tri-County Regional Planning Commission contracted with the Greater Lansing Housing Coalition to develop a regional housing plan. This plan is called the ICE Housing Plan. It includes three counties that were surveyed in this plan, which were Ingham County, Clinton, and Eaton County. Um, and to discuss the fair and affordable housing plan, we have Linda Vale the health officer for Ingham County. So thank you for joining me today, Linda. Oh, you're welcome. We just explain a bit more about what the ice housing plan is.
5: Well, the ice housing plan is basically utilization of a tool called a health impact analysis that was part of a of a, you know, a larger project um, in order to identify, you know, housing issues really that have impact on health. And really, kind of the utilization of that tool is kind of a standard way of going through and <clears throat> and talking about what what our housing conditions are in the area, and and what kinds of things we can do to improve them, and how we can um, use policy at times to kind of start to change the way things are done.
4: Great, and so you probably have a more specialty in Ingham County. But what were some of those um concerns that residents were having about their housing currently in like lower income areas?
5: Well, um you know, usually in in low and moderate income areas there's a lot of different issues. We can um we, we know from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the county health rankings that our county has um uh, is ranks amongst the worst in severe housing problems. And that's based on overcrowding, high housing costs, and lack of plumbing or kitchen facilities. Those are the markers that they use. But um, in general, we find that we don't have access to safe, quality, and affordable housing um, that you know that's within an, uh, an affordable you know income range. And a lot of the health problems associated with the housing are things like lead, smoke, mold, pests such as bed bugs. Um, And then some less obvious things related to transportation, which is access to transportation, access to grocery stores, and kind of crime rates in the neighborhood. So, in general, you know, we we see those things as a problem in our housing um, in this particular population.
4: During the whole Freddie Gray riots in Baltimore, um, there was a Washington Post came out with an article discussing how uh, Freddie Gray, his neighborhood in general, is one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in Baltimore, And all Mm -hmm. the homes were old, and they all suffered from um, lead paint poisoning. Certainly true in Lansing as well. Right. And is it true that some of the side effects of lead paint poisoning are ADHD uh, correlates often with higher dropout rates in high school and things like that? I wouldn't call them
5: side effects. Those are consequences. Yeah, lead poisoning, yeah. It, It has a lot of impacts, you know, mental impacts, slowing down, you know, brain kinds of things, and, yeah, ADHD. Um, slow, slow development. So and then a lot of times we find that that leads to just kind of a pathway where we have, you know, more of those people in our prisons and things like that. It's really a trajectory.
4: Mm -hmm. And so with this housing plan, there's also the HIA, which Mm -hmm. that's kind of a list of suggestions to policymakers on how to like the benefits and the possible consequences of the housing plan? Could you maybe explain a bit more what the HIA is?
5: Well, the HIA is actually an impact assessment. So it's a health impact assessment. And what it does is it looks at some real specific indicators that you, you know, kind of measure within housing. So you you do a health impact assessment. You know, there are certain things that you check, you answer or whatever. and, And that gives you kind of a picture of what's going on in the area. So it tells you what the health impact is. And then that helps then to say, um, how can we develop policy? That's, it, it's a good scientific tool for policymakers to look at and say, you know, here's data, here's something that actually demonstrates issues and problems. Now, what do we do to fix those problems?
4: Mm-hmm. And what kind of have you gotten any feedback yet from policymakers or any sort of signs of um, progress?
5: Well, not a lot. Um, you know, it was it was just released. We've mm-hmm. um, certainly been a lot of people in the community involved as stakeholders and partners in putting it together. Um, and you know, we're just kind of at the edge of trying to figure out how to take things like health and health impact assessments, health and all policies approaches, and really start to push policymakers to say we really need to do these things, we need to take these things into consideration when we create policy. So in general you think about health policy and clearly health policy has health impacts. But you don't think about zoning policy, housing policy, transportation policy, um, any number of policy kind of issues that ultimately can have impacts on health unless you start to look at it kind of more proactively and say, well, if we do this this way, um, what are the unintended consequences that will negatively impact people's health, whether it be barriers to transportation, barriers to affordable housing, um, uh, you know, any number of things like that.
4: Right. And is this kind of concept of going out into the county, trying to scoping out, trying to find out what's the main issues that people are having, is this kind of a new concept for Ingham County? Because it seems it's this is kind of like, some early beginnings of work trying to transition into more affordable, more accessible housing and things?
5: Well, health and all policies is kind of a new concept in general, relatively speaking. The European Union, you know, started this back in, I think, mid-2000s. That was the first health and all policies work. state of California back, um, I think it was about a year and a half ago, issued a, a local guide or guide to local and state governments on how to do health and all policies. And, and there are just a couple of, you know, there's a, a city in California, there's counties here and there that have really started to make progress on implementing health and all policies and so the way they do business within, for instance, their governments. But you can do it any place that you have a governing entity or decision-making body that can potentially look at health um, consequences of their policy-making. So in Ingham County, you know, we've got a lot of things going on related to it. You know, this health impact assessment and this, this um our health and all project that was done kind of leads into a larger momentum where we're trying to say that really health is more than just health. Um these what we call the social determinants of health are education, housing, um uh, income, Um, transportation things like that and unless we start to kind of uncover what's going on there and really start to plan and make policies around kind of those sectors where we don't have our kind of our full-blown ability to impact health if we're just approaching health from a straight health perspective so you know it's really been a long a long time that the Ingham County and the Ingham County Health Department has been working on what we call um, health equity and social justice and focusing on these social determinants of health. And this is a really a way to just kind of put it into practice and, and start to make some changes around that approach. Awesome. And
4: um, speaking, this is a tri-county survey, but speaking just specifically in Ingham County, uh, can you recall any of like, the main priorities that Ingham County was suffering with or that um, is high on the agenda as far as readdressing the housing plans in Ingham County?
5: We have some things like uh, like 38% of uh, homes in East Lansing are owner-occupied, but the city of Lansing has the lowest percentage of owner-occupied homes. Um, renting um, it itself is not a concern. There's a lot of rentals available, but when we look at the quality and affordability in rental homes, then that's a problem. Um, students are certainly affected that, what yeah. I remember from, from a lot of that. I read on uh, one
4: of the, in the document I read, it said that Lansing has to maintain a balance of affordable and old properties. Right now it's really like a big gap in between those as mm-hmm. a way to prevent the lead poisoning and asthma. And then another thing is the problem with students with affordable like renting, like you were saying. Um, a lot of students are sacrificing, putting more money towards the housing instead of towards like health medical care. And so um, how can people... Get involved, um, be that politically or just learning more or getting a chance to read some of these documents that we've been referencing about the ICE plan?
5: I think that, you know, first of all, learning more and learning, you know, what is it that health and all policies and health impact assessments really mean, and then learning, you know, how you can kind of implement that into a number of different systems. And then we have the potential to advocate with our policymakers um, with Kind of a health message related to decisions that they're making that might not obviously be health-related decisions.
4: Okay. And is there any way that people can, if they have any questions, they can contact you or go to a website to find more answers? I would just suggest they contact our office. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Great. Well, you've been listening. If you're just tuning in, you've been listening to the health officer for Ingham County, Linda Vale, talking about the plan called the ICE Housing Plan here in Ingham County to increase affordable housing in the area. Thank you for sitting with me today.
1: You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Next, we go to Audrey Matus with another piece that she did. About two weeks ago, she interviewed the Purple Carrot, a uh, food truck, and this sparked an introspective piece that she did brings to us today about food trucks and the greater Lansing area.
3: Give me a red hot sausage, please. Yes,
6: I will read how I actually love these hot sausages. I really do.
3: Yes.
6: I was like, oh, I hope he's outside today because the, the weather was kind of cold. Right. And I was like, I hope he's outside. I looked out the window and you were out here, so I had to run
4: because I'm going back in the building.
6: Right, thank you. Yes. Oh no, see that I always do it like that. You know that. I know.
3: Right? You always I, think I on so, the way. I, I get so excited. I know. My name is Clint Tarver. And uh, I've been selling hot dogs for 20 years, but I've been selling on this corner for seven years. And also, I sell uh, crowd crowd dogs with sour crowd um, red hots, which is really good, they're jumbo red hots. They're so big and so hot if you like hot stuff. And um, then we got Snoop Dogg, which is very good.
4: Clint's hot dog cart sits on the corner of Capitol and Michigan. His specialty are gourmet hot dogs, but to have a successful food cart, Clint says, you need good food and a willingness to give.
3: And I think that's one of the reasons why i am in business so long is because of my disposition, my smile, I like people. See you tomorrow. That's what I was talking about earlier. I have friends like that. They'll come and say, okay, Clint, I'll well, see you tomorrow. Or sometimes they'll come. I've had customers come and look. Uh, man, I ain't got, I don't have my money. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Pay me when you can. I had a guy come and pay me a year later. I forgot all about it, because most of the time when people don't have money, and they say, well, look, I don't have it right now, but I'll pay you back. It's all right. Fine. I don't look for nothing back. <laughs> a lady, she said, well, look, I don't have any money. I said, don't worry about it. She had kids. Said, don't worry about it. Pay me when, when I see you. Oh, I'm going right to my car. I'll be right back. <laughs> that was two years ago. <laughs> So we do have people to take advantage of me, so I don't mind. Be happy about doing it. And I think that's one of the reasons why my business is a success, because I'm a happy giver. And uh, I don't know no other way to be. Clint's happy persona has state workers
4: and friends lining down the block. But besides Clint's hot dogs, you will seldom see another mobile food vendor in downtown Lansing. The city has strict rules when it comes to mobile food.
3: You know, and you got to have a million dollars insurance.
4: According to Clint, in order for him to sell hot dogs, he needs insurance, certifications to sell food, and pays a monthly fee.
3: Also, you've got to have a peddler's license down here. Peddler's
4: Peddler's license?
3: Peddler's license, which is to do anything down here. Anybody that's selling food or playing instruments or doing anything has to have a peddler's license from City Hall.
4: A solid street food scene seems to be a staple for every cool city, and there's a growing presence of mobile food vendors surrounding Lansing, just waiting to get in. I'm Nina Santucci.
7: And I'm Anthony Manley. And we we own own the Purple purple carrot. Carrot. I got a a phone call from Pennsylvania Culinary Arts um, in Pittsburgh and just kind of figured that it was the next step for me. So I went there in 2000 after I graduated high school.
6: I met Tony when I was in college. Um, I was a server in a restaurant where he was one of the chefs and that was the first restaurant where I was really exposed to kind of fine dining food. The two of us certainly bonded over a love of food and as me as a, a big food consumer it was pretty nice to have a chef as a boyfriend looking to impress me so
7: um all in uh, i was spent six years in philadelphia two years in austin uh two years in dc and then another two years in philadelphia
6: um we basically from there kind of spent the next 10 years of our lives together moving around the country um,
7: we opened a restaurant in philadelphia and the guy was a real good friend and he still is
6: but we had realized that that we were ready to kind of take on our own um restaurant that was always something that we wanted to do was open our own oh.
4: and when did the food truck come into the thought process
6: uh
7: we were actually watching the first year of food truck race and we saw all of them making like 10 grand in a weekend and and again it was just like i mean we were working at the restaurant that we opened in philadelphia and and we were like we don't know if we could open a restaurant right away or where or, or, or what, but it's like, well, let's just go do a food truck. I mean, we, I mean you can make some serious money doing it, and, and that's what we did.
4: It was from there that Nina and Tony decided to move back to Nina's hometown of East Lansing. I grew up in Michigan. My
6: family still lives here and is uh, pretty connected in the agriculture. And so Michigan seemed like a great place as far as the ingredients you're working with to come to, and the food truck
4: essentially was an experiment. An experiment known as farm to table, or in this case, farm to truck, where Tony and Nina meet with local farmers regularly to turn their produce into seasonal meals. The purple carrot serves everything from vegan delights, marinated meats, even cake pops. But in order for the farm to table movement to actually work and
6: be practical, you have to buy all the ingredients the farmer's growing. You can't just support them for that one commodity. You have to support everything they grow. And I think for us, We've really been able to push ourselves and our customers' taste buds by exploring all the different produce and fruits and meats that come out of here. You know, we don't just buy ribeye, we buy the tongue and the liver and the things that people don't necessarily think they like and and present them in ways that are new and exciting and approachable. 50%
2: Fifty percent of the people driving on a road aren't going to stop.
4: That's Alec Alcaraz. He's a chef on the Purple Carrot.
2: But the other fifty, most of them will stop in and ask a million questions, get to know the whole team, get to know what is, what's going on with the truck, what the truck is, what the menu is.
4: I spoke with Alec when the Purple Carrot made one of their regular stops at the Meridian Farmers Market in Okemos.
2: Um, there's a there's a lot of either eager people in the community and. Um, I feel like um, time will only increase that amount of people that stop. Food trucks are becoming the next big thing. It's the the first everyone, you know, when they retire, oh, I want to open a restaurant. I want to open a diner. Well, now with this idea of food trucks being easier than a restaurant, people, everyone wants their, you know, they're kind of like cut at, at seeing if they can have the next successful food truck, and I think it's great.
4: The Purple carrot has great food, a great reputation, and a firm customer base. But why hasn't the truck set up shop in Lansing?
6: Well, so Lansing specifically, they do not allow food trucks in what's considered their downtown district. So we can go outside of
4: the downtown district, um, but the kind of high traffic area, we're not able to be there. Along with his many certifications, the reason Clint's hot dog stand can sit in front of the Capitol
3: is because of his... Roach coach. I never had roaches. Just inside, just inside, right? But that's what people call food wagons. Roach. Coat.
4: A food wagon, or a roach coach, is an unmotorized wagon and is way too small for the Purple Carrot's needs. One of the reasons Lansing prohibits motorized food trucks is the unwanted competition from the surrounding restaurants.
6: And I wish that we could be down there more because I, I think that food trucks create a vibrancy to cities. And the problem is that a lot of people have with them is that they, they feel that they're almost a threat where they don't want that competition coming into town. And for me, I, I own a brick and mortar and I own a food truck. And if someone said, I wanna park our food truck in front of your restaurant, do you care? I would not care. That To me, that brings business. To me, I think it's two completely different experiences. And I think it would be great for these towns to encourage You know more people coming down they're bringing a little bit more life to the city and making it a more walkable fun place to be um but they're not there yet so it would be great if uh in the life of the purple carrot it gets to see a more strong presence down there but
4: we'll see what happens making the streets of lansing more walkable is something i hear a lot be it from an art gallery a devoted lansing resident or just a college student People want Lansing to be more like, well, a city, and mobile food could be a way to pull people in. For Impact News, I'm Audrey Matuse.
1: You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. If you'd like to join the conversation on Twitter, you can tweet our station at WDBM. For the second half of the show tonight, we will be covering two organizations that are Michigan based and have partnered up to build a trans affirmative community. That's glue, GLU, G L U GLU, and Transcend the Binary.
4: GLUE, which stands for the Greater Lansing Umbrella, is a group striving to build a community and resources for gender and sexual diversity in Lansing. And so tonight we have representative from GLUE, Zoe Steinfield, to talk about the many groups, many activities that GLUE is doing in the, act- in the community. Also to her right, we have Darnell Jones and Brayden Mishowick, part of Trans and the Binary, who have joined with Glue. Trans and the Binary is a nonprofit organization from Ferndale with a goal to connect people with trans affirmative resources. So first, thank you all for coming today and joining me. So first, let's start with you, Zoe. Could you explain to listeners what is Glue and how I got started?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Glue got started by myself and others um, in the Lansing area um, who were concerned that there was not enough of a community presence in Lansing for LGBTQ people, um, especially people within that within that population who are further marginalized, you know, people who are transgender, people who are um, people of color, people you know who are poor. So there's there's not a lot of options. And this is I was um, I had recently graduated from MSU where there's like 13 or so student groups and a resource center. And leaving the bubble of the university, I realized how, um, how little of a sense of community there is in the city. And I, I you know, others shared this feeling of we want to get together, we want to build something, maybe someday have a community center. But first off, we wanted to create this sort of group that would feel central to people that where there would be um, activities that were open to everyone that wouldn't just be for certain identities or you know people with certain levels of income. Like everybody would be able to go. Yeah, so we've been doing that. We also wanted to start working on social services. So, for example, a lot of a lot of trans people can't afford um, to get the see a doctor or a, see see a therapist and get the diagnosis they need, or, or be able to see a doctor to get the prescription they need to get on hormones. All these things. So that um, that is a really big deal for people. And while I was looking for a model for helping people get on hormones, simultaneously, Darnell was over in the Detroit area looking to expand his model to do the exact same thing. So somebody connected us and um, that's how we sort of partnered. Awesome.
4: And so Darnell, would you like to speak on how um, Transcend the Binary kind of complements the goals
0: of GLUE? Oh yes, definitely. First off, thank you for letting me uh, be here today. And um, I'm, really excited about the fact that just like Zoe said, she came about with an answer to a question that I had been looking at at that time. Um, Transcend the Binary actually grew out of a request. Um, The organization that I'm with, Gender Identity Network Alliance outside of Ferndale. They said, being a health professional, how about if you just make yourself available to answer questions for the trans community? And, little by little, it turned into answering questions, solving problems, and that way we were able to go ahead and recognize what were the major obstacles that were in the way from someone coming on board, making it through to, I'm not even going to call it a successful transition, but a transition that is more of a celebration of what's supposed to happen. Um. And timing-wise, couldn't have been better because it took about two years for it to turn into something with some structure. And at that same time, I said, okay, so it's time to go ahead and see if this can be done somewhere else. That was one of my goals. And it was. It was interesting because at that same time, I got an email saying, are you interested in going ahead and expanding? What was really interesting was the first area that I looked at thinking about expanding was the Lansing area, and that's where the email came from. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that actually turned out to be like a perfect combination. And um, we're growing now in the Lansing area. Um, it's helping us because as we build, we're recognizing again, what does the community need? If I can go ahead and put it into any perspective, it's based off of listening to what the community has wanted and we build our structure in order to go ahead and solve those
9: problems. There's a lot of needs assessment in there and uh, it's been really awesome to, to move into Lansing too because a lot of what we've been working on is taking our model and like finding a way to formalize it so we can replicate it so we can continue to expand it successfully into other areas. And Our model is pretty comprehensive you know we've talked so far about like the actual hormonal aspect Uh, medical health perspective, but a lot of what we do is is much broader than that too.
0: Exactly. Um, Just to go ahead and bounce off of that, I found out that one of the areas that makes a big difference is empowerment. And the beginning, the education was really all I had to give. Being a pharmacist, I was like, okay, so exactly what can I do? Well, I found out that that was actually like a little bit of a gift because as the people that came through got educated, I saw the change in their empowerment. And it turned into what we do now, which is basically build a path together. And I've learned that everybody's path is unique. Everybody's path is individual. And unless they're constructing it with you, it doesn't really achieve its goal. So
4: perfect. And this can go for anyone. What are some important lessons that you really want? this not necessarily be trans people, but um, anyone in the um, LGBTQ community. What are some important lessons that you really want the youth of these communities to learn as they're going
9: through a process? I can jump in with that. Um, I think one of the things, you know, when you're a marginalized identity, um, I think there's a lot of like internalized messages that you take with uh, you as far as like what the norm is and what the standard is. And I've seen a lot of like trans guys, trans women, whatever, where when they start to transition, everything becomes about passing and you start noticing that with other people. And there's a lot of this internalized transphobia where you're like, this is how I should be. And this is what the beauty standards are. And if I fall short of that, and then you kind of like internalize that and become very judgmental and divisive towards other people. And I think it takes a lot to really kind of like distance yourself from that way of thinking and realizing that like there's not one way to be. And it's more important just to show love and compassion and acceptance. And that's what strengthens the community. And that's what kind of brings you to more self-completion with yourself, too. So I would just say the, the biggest thing is there's a lot of internalized, you know, whether it's homophobia or transphobia or whatever it is, you know, internalizing mainstream norms and, you know, being very judgmental of others. So I think that furthering yourself from that is, is really advantageous for yourself and the community. Yeah, I think that's
8: actually one of the, one of the goals of Blue is sort of um, creating a space for us to exist outside of those mainstream norms. Um, that's great. yeah and like a lot of a lot of our events um, you know, some people might wonder why it's important to have an LGBT you know not not exclusive but centered event um, and it's really because until you have it, you don't realize what you were missing by being out in a sort of, heteronormative universe. Um, so for example, the um, our most recent and, and most successful in terms of turnout event was um, a comedy show where um, a bunch of local LGBTQ identified comedians came together um, to um, tell jokes and um, it was open to the public um, and there was huge turnout. Um, and I the reason that I had the idea for the event, uh, well, I found out that one of my uh, trans guy friends was a comedian. And I was like, oh, man, that would be great to have this happen. Um, because so often um, in the world of, like, comedy, LGBTQ people end up being the, the butt of the joke. You kind of get used to it after a while and, like, you know you're like, "Okay, when's the transphobic joke coming?" Um, and it was I just wanted to create a space where we could you know relax like we're supposed to when we're trying to laugh and not have to worry about like more abuse mm-hmm. so um i that's that's what I was thinking of when I created you know when I when I organized the event um, was that this would be a great thing for the audience to you know just be able to relax and enjoy laughing together and it was but one thing that i didn't even think about was for the comedians um it was actually a really empowering event for some of them they told me that it was it it felt really you know a relief to be able to tell jokes about their lives that the audience was going to get like that they were going to understand and and be able to laugh along with um so it was really, in a lot of ways, it's a great way to like see our stories reflected in each other and draw power from that.
4: Right, as I did go to that I was at the Avenue what, two Saturdays ago. It was the day after the equal marriage uh, legislation passed, and it was a great time. I think everyone was just happy to be there to celebrate the legislation, but also just like, like yeah. you said, that
0: space. And I know um, Darnell, you were also there. Do you yes. have anything you like to add about your experience? <laughs> um, yes. Um, it was. I went there, and I was really happy that I got the invitation to go there. Um, I had a chance to bring me and my daughter. And what started off as being there as a show of support actually ended up being this wonderful evening. Um, I know that there were times there where I was the loudest one laughing. I know this (laughs) emphatically. But to kind of couple on what Zoe said, it was really neat to go ahead and hear the comedians be able to talk basically in their world, about their world. And I could actually see that release happening. Um, I was not aware that it was that unique because in all honesty, I was thinking to myself, it would make sense to go ahead and always have these forums where it's safe to go ahead and express yourself that way. Um, How does that fit in with what we do? Well, one of the major things that Transcend thinks about all the time is everything leads to a healthy transition. And holistic health is every single part of it. That fit in perfectly, exactly what happened there, that laughter and that release. Mm -hmm.
4: And speaking on health and education is a big deal, trans in the binary, I know um, Braden was talking with me earlier about, um, I asked you guys if you had ever thought about implementing some of the education you guys do with trans in the binary into schools around Mm -hmm. the Ferndale area or just in Mm -hmm. Michigan in general. How is that going, or what is that yeah, kind of
9: conversation? That's one of our really exciting initiatives for this year. Um, we've got a a core team right now working on what we're calling youth development programming. Um, so what we're doing is we are making connections with local um, gay straight alliances, so GSA organizations at high schools, um, just to reach out, you know. So and what we want to do is is go make connections with them, come speak, and you know make ourselves available. So if there's anyone Who's questioning their gender identity, or you know, maybe their parents aren't accepting, and they're having some struggles. I mean, that's what our and our clients, our membership can really relate to. So we want to definitely make ourselves available from that perspective. Um, as things become like less controversial, we we see ourselves, you know, trying to more speak as far as like general general assemblies and doing kind of like trans 101 and what does it mean to be an ally, and you know, just just things to really kind of educate the broader community, um, not just make ourselves available to those within our community. So we definitely have both of those, I guess, on our peripheral. Um, The other thing that we're working on too, which is really, really awesome, is one of the local universities reached out to us and um, we're we're actually taking one of our internal models and making that external. And what I mean by that is we already offer like training to our doctors, pharmacists, even like mental health therapists, so they can become culturally competent learn all the trans-health-related items, and we're actually taking that, and we're going to be educating an actual university assembly. So that's a really exciting initiatives that we have for this year.
4: Yeah, and has there been any kind of contact with MSU, any, either with GLUE or trans the Binary?
9: Well, I'm, def- I'm an alumni, so that's definitely mm-hmm. on my radar. Um, so we just, we're working right now on generating, um, basically, uh, our training program, and uh, we're working on getting that. Our pilot program is going to be this fall, um, and then we're from there, we want to take it to other universities, and, and MSU is definitely dear to my heart. I went to James Madison, so.
0: Awesome. awesome. And we're definitely open to any kind of um, invitations that would be there because one of the reasons why the one university reached out to us is because they saw that we could go ahead and answer questions in this very specific field. Um, One of the things that I'm personally looking at is, how could we fit in with some clinics that may want to go ahead and move ahead with this? Because their access is gonna go ahead and solve a lot of things, but their Mm -hmm. expertise is maybe not at a level that makes them confident. Being coupled with them so that we could be there for that information and validation source.
9: Yeah, that's actually a really good point because a lot of what we do, there's there's like your front end model, there's your back end model. The front end is like our clients. So we offer education services, Basically, we offer transition counselors, so if anyone comes to us and says, hey, I'm questioning, or you know what, I'm 100% gung-ho, educate me, how do I do this, what barriers do I have, how do I overcome this, I don't have insurance, I do have insurance, how do I navigate it, or like, hey, I don't have much money, how do I go about doing this? So we, we work on the client end to fix those problems, we empower through education, like that's critical for us. Um, on the back end, though, we've built out a network of doctors. And we've taken on doctors where their knowledge base before working with us has been very minute. And we've gotten them up to speed in very short periods of time. So I would say we're, we're a liaison just as much for our clients as much as we are for the doctors that we're working with too. So that's really awesome because one of the things that we're working on too is we are building out... Um, so we have different levels of oversight that we can offer for um, you know medical providers and that sort of thing. Um, so we we offer like if they have any questions, they want to reach out to us, we can give them all of the current inventory of the field, all of the medical information that is, that is, you know, standard practice at this point in time, and we can equip them with that. But what Darnell was actually talking about, too, is we've got a really exciting opportunity where um, one of our, our local clinics um, had reached out, and, uh, you know, they're, they're subsidized by the government, and what they offer is a pain point for our clients who, you know, are financially struggling, and they're subsidized to offer... Um, their services to, to really anyone who walks through the door. Um, but the, the issue there is, while that's one pain point that's being solved, they, they didn't have any knowledge of transformative health. So they had the desire, they had the want to be culturally competent, they had the, the want to be educated and be able to provide their due diligence of excellent care to their patients. However, they were lacking the knowledge piece. So we were able to come in and not only offer them that knowledge, but we're going to be helping them and offering more oversight. So we're going to be managing clients a little bit more um, closely for that clinic than we will for you know just doctors that we get up in our network and we refer people to. So it's very robust and there's a lot of different ways that we can kind of like fill in the gaps of the resources that are available and um, you know the ideal. And the ideal is really you know we want doctors who actually care that they care to become experts like they really take a pride and not just servicing patients because they're like you know what i have no problem seeing a trans patient like for us that's not good enough we want people who care to be culturally competent and are going to continue to want to be experts and really own this niche because that's what our clients deserve i mean being trans you've got to be a huge advocate for yourself like it. Doctors might not know and you've got to ask those questions and Mm -hmm. you grow up thinking that doctors are experts and and in this area not not all of them are and I like what you
0: said when you said that one step past yes I will do it I use the word celebrate a lot and I actually deliberately mean that when I say it because I find out that this is different it doesn't have to be that it's a therapy that somebody's going through no if we just go ahead and look at it a different way Here's someone that needs to be celebrated completely and we work with them to let them be the person that they're supposed to be. And everybody on board, if they have that exact same outlook, we're going to do what we're supposed to
9: do, holistically help that person. It's the personal well-being, it's the mental health component right. there too because you've got a lot of society who's going to judge you and alienate you and all that type of stuff. And it, like, just as much as we've talked a lot about the medical component, which is very important. There's another part that's social. And that's why glue is so important because to step into areas where you can actually be celebrated and have those affirmations, what that does like neurologically and psychologically for you is amazing. Like That's what Mm -hmm. helps people have that holistic well-being.
1: You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. If you want to join this conversation, you can tweet us at WDBM on Twitter. Uh, This is an interview that we are in the middle of done by Audrey Matusse. Uh, with Glu, Glu, and Transcend the Binary, two organizations that are Michigan-based and partnered up to build trans-affirmative communities. Back to the interview.
4: Right, that's so what I wanted to get to. it. So you guys are very mental health, health-oriented. I want to see like, how um, Glu, how you're getting involved with the community. Yeah.
8: Or, yeah. I mean, I guess um, it, it's very true. Like it, it is amazing what it can do for someone's psychological well-being to to feel a part of a community to feel um not just uh not not excluded or or even just tolerated but to feel celebrated to feel wanted um and understood um so really you know glue is here to you know counter the isolation that so many of us feel um in areas that where you know a sense of community hasn't been developed as much um so yeah that's
4: do you have any like upcoming events that you guys are working on, or some events that you normally do?
8: Um, we, I mean, we've only been around since last year, so we don't have any regular events yet. Uh, we do have a bunch of ideas that we've talked about. Um, one of my um co-organizers has been uh, thinking about putting together a self-defense class for LGBTQ people. Um since that can often be, you know, that's a much needed skill, but also um, a lot of the time that kind of environment is, um, doesn't feel safe for um, queer and trans people. So that's one thing that we've talked about doing in the near future. Um, recently, we did um, like a degendered swing dance lesson, because um, partner dancing is so often very rigidly gendered. Um, and we wanted to do something where everyone felt there was no pressure to dance with uh, any particular gendered part or so that was actually um, very successful and we've been thinking about bringing that back. Um And uh we had we had like a big potluck picnic last summer and we might do that again. So there's there's a lot of things that um, you know are on the table and um yeah uh, it's really just about the having the people who have the will to host these events and make sure that they're like totally accessible. That's kind of our, our um, th- that's a principle of our group because so so much of the reason for the group is because of people feeling pushed out of spaces. We really wanna make sure that our, our events, are, that we do our best to make our events, you know, physically accessible for, you know, people of all levels of ability, financially accessible, just all these different ways. We want everyone to feel welcome.
4: Can you recall a moment, maybe it was in one of your events or something, maybe someone came to you asking for a resource, but a moment when you felt like your work was, you're seeing progress, you're seeing it paying off on other people?
8: Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just at the comedy show um, a couple weeks ago, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was, you know, referring people to go talk to Dar- Darnell because he was there, fortunately. Um, that was That was great. I mean, it really shows how much of a need there is and that what we're doing matters. So, yeah.
4: I'll pass the question to you guys, too. Do you have a moment when you felt like what you're doing was really starting to pay off? Oh, yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, We had mentioned the one university that reached out to us. And it was great because I got a phone call. And There was a question that needed to be answered, and because of the fact that they saw our flyer, they said, okay, well, here's the experts right here. Let's reach out to them. That was a big moment for me because it showed that what we were doing was going to go ahead and reach what it was supposed to reach. So that felt good.
9: That's awesome because what Darnell just mentioned, I mean, that's really like uh, a litmus test, a a mile marker of our credibility within the medical community, professionals, and local organizations reaching out to us. Um, but one thing that Darnell didn't mention, <laughs> um, uh, it, it's pretty amazing because he, like he said earlier in the interview, is he just set up shop. and He was, you know, just available. Word of mouth grew. You know, I, I've been working with Darnell. Um, he's been doing this total what three, three and a half three years, three and a half years right now. So, yes. Darnell and I started working in December of this year. And at that point, it was just the Darnell show. Like he set up shop and it was word of mouth. That's literally all the promotion. And he had at that time. How many clients would you say? At well, that clients. time, I
0: had um, between 40 and 50. 40 and time. 50
9: clients. And that's just word mm-hmm. of mouth. Now, I come from like a campaign marketing background. So, um, like, that's that's incredible. And when I stepped aboard, it was to formalize a lot of our processes. So, we now have oh, how many? We're well over 70. Over yes. 70 clients. So, that is, is pretty awesome because up until this point, I mean, our, our actual promotion has been on the lighter side because we're working on, you know, more of the administrative, more of like, building out our internal processes to provide our services better. Um, and we've got a social media campaign working on that we've got some interns with us right now. So that's really awesome. Um, so that that's a really awesome mile marker too. Um, but I would just say that like, there's a lot of people that one of Darnell's clients that I've talked to too, Um, he, he just mentioned like he, uh, dysphoria was really bad for him. Like he, he couldn't even imagine continuing to exist. And I mean, that's how severe it can get. And like, to have him come in and have him to see him, you know, 12, 16 months later, on his transition and and healthy and happy and, you know, curbing substance abuse and just having a very healthy lifestyle. I mean, uh, to me, that was like really amazing. But that's not just the HRT, the hormone replacement Mm -hmm. therapy. I mean, what Zoe was talking about earlier. I mean, that is like it's legit, like dysphoria gets really bad. I mean, you have families who reject you and you internalize those messages and you take that to heart. It affects your confidence. It snowballs into every domain of your life. And like for me, I think that what really helped me is when I moved to Ferndale, which is an amazing area, um, I started connecting not only with Darnell so I could get my own transition going, which helped a lot, but equally as important as much as like the medical sounds important it's maybe more complicated to pull off, the social is just as important in my mind. And one of the organizations that um, we, we partnered with, too, in the Ferndale area, it's called ftm detroit and they're all about social events and just creating a brotherhood and even though they're just doing social events and that seems like oh well maybe that's not doing as good like i got one of the guys there he's always like oh what you guys are doing with trans is just so much more important and i'm like no that is absolutely not true because if you don't have that belonging if you don't have people around you validating your your gender identity you know it takes a while before you start to kind of like it takes a while before like people normal society recognizes you at that and it just helps like take this thing that you've always wanted and cement it and make it real so what zoe's doing is amazing for the lansing area i i couldn't agree more um i think about the other organization that um,
0: i'm associated with gina and the same conversations kind of come up but i'm there telling them no what we do our day of empowerment we're doing one that's going to be so on art. Um, we're doing just workshops that have to do with community building and cultural enrichment. To me, that's really where that next step is supposed to be anyway. I go ahead and I fill in some nuts and bolts, but to say that that actually, that to me is kind of like, okay, that's step one. In order to go ahead and make. That situation where you are the person that you're supposed to be, the celebrated person, we fill you up with people stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's the important thing in my mind.
4: Now, this next question, I feel like you guys have already answered it, but but um, what does the future hold for your guys' organizations?
8: Okay, right now we're trying to sort of build the foundation of a sense of community. And as a long-term goal, we would like to see a community center in the Lansing area um, because there isn't one right now. I mean... Right now, um, the closest thing is the resource center, which is you know on the third story of the student services building on MSU's enormous campus. So that's not really something that you know it feels it like there there's a there's a sort of distancing there from the wider community um, and so there that would be something that I would love to see happen in um, in the future but we're we're still tr- sort of drumming up support and letting people know we're here and um, trying to to grow bit by bit.
9: Yeah, so I mean, we, we talked a little bit a little bit of the program. So we've got like training um, and actually education series that we want that we are working currently on doing. Um, we're also working on completing some research with another local university, which that's been really awesome. And and as much as like we are, I guess there, there's two ways to answer this question. First of all, we want to move towards sustainability. Every conversation that Darnell and I have is towards making this thing so it can continue to function and continue to be their established cornerstone for the community and continue to to live on. Um, so we're looking at, we're at grants, we're looking at partnering uh, with local organizations. Um, we're trying to like strengthen organizations in the area. Um, that, that to me has been really important because there is a lot of divisiveness. So we're trying to like lead by example by being above that and, and really partnering with other organizations and like strengthen that fabric. Um, but we're looking at um, grants, funding, um, so we can continue that sustainability. Um, and then the other thing that we're looking at doing too is, um, which I'm really interested in, is take this research and continue doing it. Um, the research that we're focusing on is not only needs assessment, but it's also like congruence, quality of living, um, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of research to be done. Uh, medically, as well as, you know, on the uh, social well-being side, too.
8: I think that there's a lot of areas where um, we would also like to see um, partnerships with um, in the social services um, in the area, especially areas that disproportionately impact LGBTQ people. So, for example, youth homelessness is a huge issue for uh, LGBTQ people. But as of right now, um, I don't feel... There's a, there's a, there's a lot of cases where people come to me like, "Hey, do you know of a place where I can stay or where my friend can stay because um you know, where they're going to respect my gender identity and, you know, where I'm not going to have to like prove that I've gone through such and such hoops that I wouldn't have had the money for anyway. You know, these kinds of things. Um and I there's not much I can tell them. I mean, there aren't really shelters around that I think that there's the willingness to um, accommodate trans uh, clients, but I don't think there's the knowledge. Um, So that's something that I would like to see um, maybe lasting partnerships with organizations like that in the area.
0: Brayden obviously spoke uh, quite a bit about most of them, so I'll go ahead and toss out, which to me, my personal dream future plans, um, to... Replicate this model, because I'm seeing so much validity in it, Um, the defining factor being that when the client comes in, they become an equal part, and we're more like their companion on their journey. I would love to see that become more of an established model taken on throughout the country, because I believe that we're just now seeing the upward tide of people who are going to be coming and needing the services. And then a second personal, you had mentioned a place, I have this vision of what I like to call a celebration house, where it's a different kind of a thing. Instead of you saying you walk through the door because you have nowhere else to go, the second you walk through the door, you realize this is the place that you want to be. Mm -hmm. And we take you and you move immediately into an area where you celebrate it, you thrive. You get everything that you need in order to go ahead and re-enter as this powerful moving figure in society.
4: Beautiful. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm going to close up the interview here, but before we go, where can people go? We'll start with GLUE. Where people go, if they want to get more involved. That be learning use more information about the LGBTQ community, getting involved with GLUE. What kind of information do people need?
8: Yeah, definitely. Um, you should follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page, Greater Lansing Umbrella. Um. Anytime we have an event, we post about it there, so you can subscribe to our events. Um, we also um, uh, you can contact us by email at greaterlancingumbrella at gmail um, If you want to be involved, not just if you don't not just in attending the events, but if you want to be involved uh, with organizing events and if you have other projects that you'd like the group to work on, uh, whether they're you know for socializing or for you know. Um, this sort of holistic, healthy community goal, then you can we actually have a, uh, a secret Facebook group. It's, it's private for the it, it's made secret for the privacy of members who might not be out to the public, but it's open to anybody. so um, yeah, so just contact us if you would like to get involved. And then
9: transcend. Um, well, the easiest way to reach out to us is you can email us at info at transcendthebinary.org. Um, So that's a really great way. We are on Facebook. We've got a website in the works. Um, As far as ways that people can get more involved, uh, we're looking for people to help us with social media, and we're always interested in people who, you know, have a communications background or are pre-med, and we've got a lot of, like, materials that we're working on putting together um, to educate doctors um, as well as, you know, for our training that I mentioned that we have coming up and that sort of thing. So we could really use a lot of work with um, people who have some, like, writing skills and interest in the medical side. Um, so there would be great areas. And then otherwise, just like other other volunteers, there's a way to help us promote what we're doing. Because um, that's really important, too, because part of our mission is to generate greater access. So the more people who know about us, that inherently promotes greater access. So uh, those would be the, the best ways. So email us at info at transcendthebinary.org.
0: And, of course, look us up on Facebook. We are there, transcend the Binary.
4: Perfect. Well, I appreciate you all for joining me today so much. It was a great conversation, and I hope the best. I wish the Uh, best for your organizations. Thank you. Thank you for for having
9: us.
8: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's going to be it for the show tonight. I'd like to give a special thanks to our station manager, Sammy Leonardo, our general manager, Ed Glazer, and our assistant news director, Audrey Matusse. All episodes of Exposure can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at WDBM. You've been listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM, and I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
3: Impact Exposure.